listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. co-host again today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, award-winning volunteer and chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. This is episode 117 of Lighthearted, and this is May 2nd, 2021. In today's episode of Lighthearted, we're heading back across the Atlantic to Scotland. To be exact, we're heading to Shetland, the island group that's part of Scotland. We'll tell you more about that in a minute. First, let's talk about what's happened on this date in Lighthouse history. On May 2nd, 2000, a violent storm ravaged the Galveston Jetty Lighthouse in Texas. The iron pilings that supported the lighthouse gave way and it fell into the water. The lighthouse's lantern was salvaged and stored in a welding yard. Thanks to Galveston College, a replica of the lighthouse that includes the original lantern was created and dedicated in 2006. The replica stands on the Galveston College campus. On May 2nd, 2002, lightning struck the Mispillion Lighthouse in Delaware, and the fire that resulted destroyed much of the wooden building. The good news is that Mispillion Lighthouse was reconstructed using some of the materials from the old structure, and it now stands at Ship Carpenter Square in Lewis, Delaware. So, Michelle, please help me tell everyone about our destination today, Sumbra Head Lighthouse in Shetland, and our guests, Jane Outram and Brian Johnson. Sure, Jeremy. The lighthouse at Sumbra Head, established in 1821, is the oldest lighthouse in the Shetland Islands, a part of Scotland. The islands are 110 miles north of Scotland and 190 miles east of Norway. The light station is on a dramatic promontory at the southern tip of mainland Shetland, the largest of the islands and the fifth largest island in the British Isles. The name Sumbra comes from Norse, meaning the South Brach. A brach was a type of fort structure. The lighthouse was designed by Robert Stevenson, one of the most prolific and celebrated lighthouse engineers in the world. Stevenson visited Shetland in 1814 with the writer Sir Walter Scott, and he declared Sumbra Head to be a good location for a lighthouse. Construction was difficult as an access road, one and a half miles long, had to be built so that the materials could be transported to the site. When completed in 1821, the light station was the first in Shetland. It consisted of the lighthouse tower, dwellings for a principal keeper and an assistant keeper, along with their families, and a smitty building that housed a workshop with accommodation for visitors on the upper floor. The lighthouse is considered by historic Scotland to be one of Scotland's finest surviving examples of early 19th century architecture. The tower is 56 feet tall, and the light is about 300 feet or 91 meters above the sea. Because Sumbra Head is exposed to severe weather conditions, the walls of the lighthouse were built twice as thick as usual. The station was automated in 1991, and the former keepers' houses and the other buildings, except for the lighthouse tower, are now by the Shetland Amenity Trust. The trust has renovated and restored the buildings to create a world-class visitor attraction. Before we introduce our guests, I want to mention that listeners can access a transcript of today's interview 
on the U.S. Lighthouse Society's news blog. You can find the blog at news.uslhs.org. Again, news.uslhs.org. Our Zoom connection wasn't the best, and American listeners might not be used to the Shetland accent. You might want to follow along with the transcript. Brian Johnson's connection with Sombrero Head Lighthouse goes back many years, beginning when he took a position as supernumerary assistant keeper in 1969. Most of Brian's lighthouse career was spent as a mechanical technician. He refurbished the foghorn at Sombrero Head, and on special occasions, visitors can watch as he expertly starts the diesel engine to sound the foghorn. Jane Outram first visited Shetland for three weeks and is still there 18 years later. She initially worked with the archaeological team of the Shetland Amenity Trust. When a position as a guide at Sumbra Head became available in 2015, she jumped at the opportunity. Then in 2019, she made the move to the site supervisor position at Sumbra Head Lighthouse. I had a chance to speak with Jane Outram and Brian Johnson in March. Let's listen to that now. I'm speaking today with Jane Outram and Brian Johnson, who are associated with the Sumbra Head Lighthouse in Shetland, which is part of Scotland. Thanks so much for joining me today, Jane and Brian. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's great to be here. So first of all, can you explain where the Shetland Islands are and where Sumbra Head is? Yes, of course. So Shetland is an archipelago of around 100 islands, 15 of which are inhabited. And we are located approximately 100 miles off the northern tip of mainland Scotland and due west of Bergen in Norway. And Sombra Head is the rocky headland at the southern tip of mainland Shetland. And this is where the North Sea meets the North Atlantic. So how do people get to Shetland from mainland Scotland? So there are two options for getting to Shetland. You can take an overnight ferry from Aberdeen, which takes between 12 and 14 hours, or you can fly. And there are several flights every day from Scottish airports, including Edinburgh, Glasgow, Inverness and Aberdeen. Okay. I was reading that the weather conditions at Sumbra Head can be very harsh. So what sort of weather do you get there? Uh, Well, really, the weather here is no worse than any exposed headland in northern Scotland. I suppose lighthouses, by the very nature and purpose, tend to be situated in very exposed locations. And I'm often surprised that even on a windy day, how sheltered it can feel within the grounds of Sumbra Head. But overall, it doesn't rain very much in Shetland, and we have mild winters with temperatures between 5 to 10 degrees warmer than other places on the same latitude, and this is down to the influence of the Gulf Stream. That's not to say that we don't get our fair share of wind here. Uh, Margaret Anderson, an assistant keeper's wife, told us that she could remember watching her husband, Leslie, on his hands and knees against the strength of the wind, trying to reach the tower. And uh, Tommy Yunson, who was an occasional keeper at Sumberhead from 1968, said that his predecessor had told him he'd once seen sea spray up within the tower, some 300 feet above sea level. Tommy said he could scarcely believe it until he saw it for himself in what he described as a flying hurricane. So yeah, I suppose the weather can get a little bit fresh at Sumberhead. (laughs) It sounds like some pretty serious wind there, I'd say. Can you explain how the lighthouse was actually constructed to withstand uh, the elements there? The walls of the lighthouse were designed and built to a double thickness, measuring four feet wide with a void in between to keep the damp out. 
it was the first time Robert Stevenson had tried this technique, a kind of cavity wall technique, and it worked because the inside of the tower is perfectly dry to this day. As you just mentioned, the Sumber Ahead Lighthouse was designed by the very famous engineer, Robert Stevenson. We've talked about him before in this podcast, and I know a lot of lighthouse buffs are certainly familiar with his work. But can you explain a little bit about why he's considered so important for people who might not be familiar with him? Well, it's hard to find something to say about Robert Stevenson that hasn't been said already, but he was a prolific designer of lighthouses. In fact, the Stevenson name is synonymous with Scottish lighthouses. Um, so Robert Stevenson, with his sons, his grandsons, and stepfather before him, designed most of Scotland's major lights, of which there are over 90. So as an apprentice, Robert assisted his stepfather, Thomas Smith, with three lighthouses before overseeing the construction of his first lighthouse, and all before the age of 20. Robert would go on to oversee the construction of a further 15 lights, including the most famous of all Stevenson lighthouses, the Bell Rock. But Robert's legacy extends to more than these incredible feats of engineering. Robert gave the service a, a kind of naval character to encourage self-discipline and reliability in the men, and a sense of pride in a job well done. Was there anything in particular about the keepers and families who lived at Sumbro Head that, that really stands out for you? Well, I think the thing that stands out for me was their resilience. Like keepers and their families, they were a hardy bunch, able to weather the storm and always make the best of their situation. And there are so many great stories from former keepers. I remember reading about um, George Cusseter, who took up post as, as assistant keeper here from 1959. He arrived with his wife and his one-year-old daughter, and they lived in the cottage to the west of the tower. He described the accommodation as primitive, uh, as they had no electricity, no running water, and no proper bathroom. In fact, at the time, there was an outdoor chemical toilet, the contents of which George had to tick down a waste chute, basically a hole in the perimeter wall with the sea below. But George said, on a windy night, what went down the chute? I'll leave you to guess the rest. Um, but George also mentioned the, the kind of foibles and quirks of life at a lighthouse. For example, when the grocer's van arrived, the principal keeper's wife had first choice, followed by the first assistant keeper's wife. But as George was the second assistant keeper, his wife was always last to enter the grocer's van and had to make do with whatever was left. And I think this kind of pecking order spilled over into other domestic chores. Brian, uh, your association with the lighthouse at Sumbra Head, I think, goes back to at least 1969. How did you first get involved with lighthouses? Well, I had one of my uncles uh, serve as a keeper at Sumbra, and I had other uncles who, in fact, served on the lighthouse ships. So uh, it was just something I knew about and something I quite fancy, I suppose. So what was life like for keepers at Sumbra? Well, Sumbra Head was always considered to be a fairly good station, uh, relatively speaking. It was a family station. Uh, the wives and children, of course, stayed at the station with the keeper. It was also handy with schools and shops, handy post office, church, all the other general amenities. And people could more or less live a fairly normal family life at Sumbra. But it was considered to be a good station. Also, uh, Brian, I understand you spent three years as a keeper at Cape Wrath, a Scottish station that's uh, the northern point of Britain. What was it like there? Uh, that was an altogether different affair. 
just as a, a wee note, uh, Cape Wrath is in fact the most northwesterly point of Scotland. Now, the Cape was a very, very, very remote station. It was only accessible originally uh, by a small open ferry, and then there's about 11 miles of very different road to there to the lighthouse. Shortly after I left to become a technician, the families were moved to live in a town. And just as a wee point of interest, my son Billy was the last boy born to a family while we were still at Cape Wrath. So you were a lighthouse technician for uh, many years, and you still are uh, at Sumber Ahead, uh, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But what sorts of work have you done as a lighthouse technician? As mechanical technicians, we repair or service everything. The lightroom machine, the optic itself, the fog horn, the engines and the compressors, which drove the fog horn, the generators, their engines. If they now be on that basically we fixed it. I know that Sumbra today has a, an operational foghorn, and I believe you were involved in the restoration of that. Could you tell me more about the, the horn and, and uh, its restoration? It's not operational as, as a marine signal anymore. Right. It's only really operational for demonstration purposes. It uh, had stood dormant for about 27 odd years, and um, I was asked, do you think this could be made to work again? I said, oh, no problem at all. <laughs> well, I suppose it was not difficult. It was nothing I had not done before. It's just after 27 years of idleness, it took, everything had to be basically stripped down and start from scratch. But yes, it now works. The engines run all three sets. We use two sets to blow the horn and one as a standby. Yeah, it all works. And hopefully, yes, things come back to normal. I'm hoping that very shortly Jane here will be able to open her, her visitor centre and will be able to blow the horn. We always blow it for opening day and, and closing day of the season. So the, are there any other special occasions when the horn is, is sounded? Yes, we uh, have blown it for upon request. I mean, if a, a group of some enthusiasts wanted to hear it, we've blown it for weddings. Yeah, just we'll blow it on request, except for the, the, sometimes during the, the height of the nesting season. Well, it was just uh, remembering the wedding um, that we uh, had at Sombra Head, and the groom insisted that he wanted to sound the folk horn as part of the wedding ceremony that's because right. well, it turns out nothing says I love you like a big blast of a folk horn. Yes, <laughs> not. It does that very loudly, I'd say. So I was at uh, the Souter Lighthouse in England uh, a few years ago, and uh, they blasted a diaphone horn there for us. There they actually had a musical piece that was done where the, the horn played a, a role in that. What type of horn is it is there again at Sumber? It's a silent diaphragm. It's slightly different from a diaphragm. And I, I think there's a YouTube video that uh, shows, I think, your internet with the uh, operation of the foghorn. Am I right about that? This was several been made by them. I'm not sure just how many. There are there are quite a few, but yeah, we produced yeah. one a few years ago, which yeah. follows Brian um, starting the engines and going over to the foghorn, and it was it was beautifully choreographed. And I think last time I looked, it's had over one million views, which is which is great. Wow, that's pretty impressive. So uh, Brian, when I was looking for information on you, I came across something called the Brian Johnson Lighthouse Keeper Dance. What's the story on that? Well, I believe you have been in contact with Peter and Follow the Lights. Yes, Peter Gallagher, yes. yes. Well, 
Peter was staying in the St. Peter in accommodation, and um, he shattered me going about my duties. And he was also there, I believe it was the summer opening season, he was there when we did the Falcon Blow. And he decided on this dance to represent what I did. That's really how it came about. This is just Peter Galletti, he, he wrote it. Peter's a Peter's a great guy, and uh, I'm sure he meant it as a tribute to you and to, to Lighthouse Keepers. So he, he certainly appreciates uh, everything to do with with lighthouses. This is a question for for either of you. Uh, besides the horn, I understand there was a fog bell at Sumbera that has a, an interesting history. Could uh, one of you tell me about that? Well, actually, this is a story that I've been following up on recently. It relates back to a ship, the Royal Victoria. It was abandoned at sea during her maiden voyage on the 19th of January, 1864. The crew was forced into two wooden lifeboats with the intention of staying together and making a course for Orkney. But the two boats parted company during that first night. Four days later, the first lifeboat reached Melby on the west side of Shetland. But in the intervening days, word of the Royal Victoria's abandonment had been picked up by the press and there was real interest in uh, the concern for the fate of her crew. On the sixth day, the second boat reached Skatnes here in the South Mainland, although some on board had died of exposure, including the captain and six of the crew. The local people who were out gathering driftwood at the time helped the stranded sailors, and it was noted that Captain Leslie's uh, must have perished the moment they reached the shore, as his body was still warm and his watch still ticking away inside his pocket. Yeah. A local doctor, Dr Cowie, was sent from Lerwick to attend to the survivors, and on his way to Sumbra, he encountered a company of 250 men carrying the coffins of Captain Leslie and his crew to nearby Dunrossness Kirk, where they were interred together. Dr Cowie said it was the most impressive sight he'd ever witnessed. The owners of the Royal Victoria were so grateful to the people of Shetland for the kindness they had shown their crew that they gifted a bell to Sumbra Head to be sounded during fog. And this became the first fog warning at Sumbra Head. By all accounts, it was never very successful. The problem being that finding someone to ring the bell indefinitely during prolonged periods of foul weather and fog. Sometime before 1890, it had fallen out of use and it was agreed that the bell would be of better use at the Kirk. So it was moved to the belfry of Dunrossness, where it resides to this day. The Sumbra Foghorn was operational from 1906 and a big improvement on a bell. I'm sure. I'm sure it was hard to hear that bell in a really uh, thick or heavy weather. This is, again, a question for, for either of you, but uh, another thing I read about in the history of uh, Sumbra is that there's something called a World War II chain home low radar station there, and uh, I'm sure probably a lot of our listeners, as well as me, really have no idea what this is, so could you explain what that is? Chain Home Low was the name of the British early warning radar system operated by the Royal Air Force during World War II. But at the start of the war, the RAF had no operational air defence radars in Shetland. Instead, the Royal Navy organised their own radar stations called Admiralty Experimental Stations. And these went from the northern tip of mainland Scotland at Dunnet Head to the island of Unst in the north. There were six stations altogether four of which were in Shetland, including Admiralty Experimental Station 1, located within the grounds of Sumbra Head. 
and it was operational from December 1939. So this station was tasked with plotting surface U-boats attempting to go from the North Sea into the North Atlantic. And it was also capable of detecting aircraft by transmitting and receiving radio waves. The principal keeper at the time, William Grote, was unhappy to find his home and his place of work overtaken by war. And William wrote to the Northern Lighthouse Board on more than one occasion because he was concerned that the military presence made Summerhead an easy target, putting the men, women and children at risk. And time would show that the keeper was right to be concerned uh, when in the following few years, Fair Isle South suffered two fatal attacks from enemy aircraft, killing the assistant keeper's wife and the principal keeper's wife and daughter. But despite William Grote's concerns, both the Admiralty and the Ministry of Shipping would not budge as they knew enemy shipping and submarines used the North Sea as their preferred route into the North Atlantic, making Shetland, and in particular Sumberhead, an important base for both the Navy and the Air Force. And on the 8th of April 1940, so this was the eve of the German invasion of Denmark and Norway, Admiralty Experimental Station 1 detected and gave early warning of a large-scale attack on the British Home Fleet, so that's the Royal Navy, who were at anchor in Scapa Flow in Orkney. We actually have some details of that night. So Sub-Lieutenant George Clifford Evans was in charge that night, and he detected the planes around 100 miles southeast of Sumbra and was able to provide a 25-minute warning of this impending attack on Scapa Flow. As the planes continued to be tracked, George stepped outside on, on what he said was a clear starlit night and he looked towards Orkney and witnessed a tremendous firework display in absolute silence. This was the Scapa Barrage repelling the enemy attack. Eight minutes later, the rumble and roar of the anti-aircraft guns could be heard all the way in Lerwick, 125 miles away, and it was described at the time as the loudest continuous sound ever heard in the British Isles. Wow, that's quite a, quite a history. So Sumber has played a big role in history and a big role during uh, World War II. Brian, uh, you are now a retained keeper. That's a, another term we don't use here in the U.S. Can you explain what a retained keeper is exactly? I look after several lights around Shetland, including Shumberhead. Some I visit monthly, some bi-monthly, and so on. And um, just a case of checking everything, all the equipment, and just see that everything is functioning, see there's no broken lantern panes. It's just general caretaking duties, keep it sort of tidy and make sure everything is working properly. Another part of a retained lightkeeper, or RLK, as they call us job, is check and monitoring. There are some 37 lighthouses in Shetland. All these lighthouses are monitored either by landline telephone, a mobile phone, or radio, and they all connect back to the monitor station, the monitor center in Edinburgh. Now, these monitors, as you well know, can, 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 can turn faulty, or in effect, they can actually be working correctly and say that the light is not functioning correctly. If that be the case, I go into visual observation at night to see that the light is in function in the character or whatever else, and then report my findings onto the monitor center. We also have several lit navigation bodies around Shetland. And we note on that is that I, I, I do hate 
having the report that outage on one of the boys, an outage is when a light is, is, is extinguished. We call it an outage. And the reason I hate reporting it on a boy rather than a lighthouse where you can approach it mainly by land is that in the case of a boy outage, then one of the ships has to be steamed from wherever it might be, possibly even the Isle of Man, the whole way up to repair it. Now, if you've made a mistake and given an outage when there isn't a one, it's a very expensive mistake to have made. So you have to be sure whether you're seeing them or not. So, Brian, you, you mentioned that you look after Sumbra and some other lighthouses in the area. How many in all do you look after? Well, as I say, the, the monitoring covers about 37, but I have uh, four that I visit uh, regularly. I cover, shall we say, the mainland of Shetland. There's one in Fuller, which covers the Fuller light only, and one in Fair Island, which there's both Fair Isle lights. Mm-hmm. Because they're, they're quite inaccessible, uh, or, or, or they wouldn't have that. I think there's 17 of us in Scotland, but I might be one or two out of that. Do you remember when the automation of lighthouses in, in Scotland was completed? Yes, I remember that well. I, I was involved in quite a bit of that as, as a technician. Okay. It's sort of quite sad sometimes to see the, the stations being demanded and, and people walking away and the door shut for the last time. It was quite sad, especially coming in the end of the time when there was fewer and fewer and fewer manned lighthouses being left. Yeah. yeah. That was around what what time, around the, the year that that happened? 98. 98, I think it was 98, yeah. yes, 98. I knew, I knew every one of the keepers, was in fact, I was very friendly with most of them. So. <laughs> yeah, so I think we have a mutual friend in Ian Duff, you know Ian, right? Oh, yes, Ian is, Ian is, a, is a good friend of mine. Um, Ian and me have had a few good times together. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Ian seems like somebody who knows how to have a good time. I met him when I met him when I was in Scotland at St. Ab's Head uh, and I took pictures of him there when I was there in 2017. And I interviewed Ian for the, this podcast uh, a few months ago. By the way, when I was in Scotland in 2017, our group uh, visited the Northern Lighthouse Board uh, headquarters in uh, Edinburgh. And they gave us a nice reception there, gave us a presentation. So that, that was fun. Back to specifically about Sumbra Head. I understand there's been at least a couple of major restorations there. And this is probably a question for Jane. What sorts of things have been done on the restorations? Uh, well, we heard earlier how Brian restored the, the foghorn and the engines. And as part of the restoration of Sambra Head, we also removed the brick-built extensions to the rear of the lightkeeper's cottages, added sometime in the 1950s. And we also replaced the missing octagonal chimney stacks on the roof to reinstate Robert Stevenson's kind of neoclassical design. Uh, We also removed a pair of derelict timber and concrete garages, also added in the 1950s, and created our museum within the existing buildings, including the engine room and fuel store, the East Pavilion, Smiddy, and East Radar Hut. The layout of the East Pavilion was reconfigured to accommodate what is now our Marine Life Centre, with a customer lift to the first floor and the inside of the radar hut was, was kind of reimagined with a little bit of artistic license, I'd say, as uh, photographs were rarely taken in such top secret places. Really sounds like there's a lot, lot to see there. And also, Sumber Ahead is considered an important site for seabirds. What, what kind of birds do you get there? Well, Sumber Ahead is, is indeed a, an important site for seabirds. You see, Shetland is home to more than a million breeding seabirds, 
and that's more than 10% of Britain's total. And Sumbrahead is one of the most easily accessible seabird colonies. So during the summer months, uh, the cliffs beneath the lighthouse are teeming with puffins, guillemots, razorbills, kittiwakes, fulmers, and shags. Puffins nest in burrows at the top of the cliffs and will sit on the grassy banks immediately on the other side of the perimeter wall. So for our visitors, they can experience incredible close-up views of these captivating and sometimes comical seabirds. Here at Sumbrahead, we also see more than our fair share of common and rare migrant birds as they make their way south in the autumn and return north the following spring. It's an exciting time as you never know what might turn up. And I think I'm right in saying that the light from the lighthouse also attracts some of these migrating birds. Now I've written accounts of former lightkeepers finding unfamiliar birds around the balcony at the top of the tower. Uh, do you also have whales and marine mammals there? We're so fortunate to have regular sightings of a variety of mammals, um, including killer whales. In fact, Sumbrahead has been described as the best place in the British Isles to observe killer whales or orca from the land as they hug the coastline looking for seals who breed around the base of our cliffs. Other sightings include minke whales, humpback whales, Rizzo's dolphins and harbour porpoises. It feels like marine mammal sightings are becoming increasingly common in Shetland. I don't know if this really is the case, reflecting changes in the marine environment, but certainly with social media, there's much better reporting of any sightings. So you can pretty much follow the alerts on your phone and get to where you need to be to see something incredible. Generally speaking, the roads in Shetland are quiet. And so we always tell visitors to look for the wildlife watchers first to find the wildlife. If you see a cluster of cars at the side of the road in Shetland, it's likely something's been sighted. A lot of lighthouse aficionados are lovers of birds and wildlife as well. So it seems like this would be kind of a paradise for, for a lot of these people. The lighthouse this year is 200 years old. So what, what sorts of things are being done this year to celebrate the anniversary? Uh, well, first and foremost, we're giving all the lighthouse buildings a much needed coat of paint. I think everyone would agree that the one downside of automation was losing a maintenance team who could paint the lighthouse every year. And we want Sumbrahead to look her best for a special anniversary. We've decided to spread out our celebrations throughout the entire year, beginning with a celebratory blast of the foghorn. And this will allow us to do more as well as ensuring there'll be bicentenary events on offer to visitors throughout the season. But it also allows us to have perhaps a more cautious start to the events programme in terms of the types of events we offer. As we have to remember, we're still emerging from this pandemic kind of what to operate within the guidelines and by spreading the celebrations throughout the year we can push back events like light tower tours or film nights to later in the season. With so many parts to the Summerhead story we've split this year into four themes so we'll be looking at building the lighthouse, working at the lighthouse, living at the lighthouse and finally picking out some of those big days and events in the 200 year history of Summerhead, including stories from the war and shipwrecks. For each of these themes, the curator at the Shetland Museum is working with us to host a lighthouse display, and we'll have a series of photo exhibitions here at Sumbrahead. We'll also be leading guided walks around the headland and regular tours of our visitor centre. We'll be hosting a book launch later this summer for Donald Murray's forthcoming publication, For the Safety of All, the story of Scotland's lighthouses, which I believe Brian contributed to, and Brian's volunteered to take part in a Q&A session 
about the Lighthouse Service. And through his contacts, we're hoping to reach out to as many of our former keepers as possible. I'm going to be taking a crash course in filmmaking and editing soon. So the dream is to capture conversations with our former keepers to screen as part of a film night. We've also been preparing family activities for the summer and there'll be lots of natural heritage events too. So fingers crossed, it's going to be a busy summer for us all here at Sumberhead. I guess so. That all sounds, sounds great. A lot of good projects. So we're actually recording this on March 10th. People will be hearing it a, a few weeks later, several weeks later. And uh, you've kind of answered this to some degree already. And of course, uh, you've, been, you've been closed because of the pandemic. But I think uh, this, uh, I, I have this podcast, this episode slated for the beginning of May. And by that time, I believe it should be reopened by the time people hear this. So in, in fairly normal times, uh, when someone comes to, the visit, to visit the site, what is there for them to see there? Okay, so along with all the outdoor attractions, the seabirds, the stunning views, the coastal walks, we also have a museum to celebrate all the different aspects of Sumberhead. So for first time visitors to Shetland, our museum is like a gateway into the Isles, introducing Shetland's incredible wildlife, its geology, archeology, span history, and more. We have four different display areas within existing buildings. So the engine room fuel store is now our gift shop and ticket office. And this leads you through into the restored engine room. And in here, we look at the changing technology of the lighthouse and also the later installation of the foghorn. Next door is the blacksmith's workshop or smithy, complete with its original forge and bellows from 1822. And here we look at what it was like to live and work at a lighthouse. We also introduce some of our former keepers and their families in a large photo album, which visitors are welcome to film through. The East Pavilion houses our Marine Life Centre. So downstairs, we introduce Shetland's rich and productive marine environment and the food web. And upstairs, we meet our top predators with displays on orca, on minke whales, and the stars of our cliffs, the puffins. And finally, there's the radar hut, which recreates that night back in April 1940, when they thwarted a surprise German air raid on the Royal Navy. We also have a new build at Sumberhead, the Stevenson Centre, and this is home to our cafe. This circular building features a panoramic view of the South Mainland, and there can't be too many cafes where you can watch puffins whizzing past or mm-hmm. a pod of orca cruising by. I would say not. Boy, it sounds like an amazing place to visit. And are there also overnight accommodations there? Yes, there are. We have self-catering accommodation in the West Pavilion, which is the keeper's cottage that assistant keeper George Cusseter described as primitive back in 1959. I'm happy to report that the standard of accommodation has greatly improved since George's day, uh, with a beautiful kitchen, underfloor heating and bedrooms for up to five people. We've also renovated the occasional keeper's accommodation into kind of more of a bunkhouse, And in recent years, this has been used by wildlife and conservation volunteers monitoring Shetland seabirds. So let me ask you, do you have any problems with erosion there at Sumbra Head? Yes, um, there's been, in my time, there's been a few smallish uh, cliff slides, but we had one about some years back, which... um, well, we actually ended up having to realign the road up to the station because of it. It was quite a substantial slip. 
the potential was there for more to happen. So the road was realigned, shifted about 20 yards farther uh, than the hill away from the, from the cliff. But that's probably more on the approaches to the station than actually up at the height, although there are a few up there as well, but no quite so much, I think. So before we wrap up here, Jane, uh, I want to ask you something. I, when I was uh, looking for information, I, I found out that you also create clothing, which I found very interesting. And uh, I was wondering if you use the famous Shetland wool. I'm sure a lot of people have heard about that. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Wow, you, you've really done your homework, Jeremy. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I suppose I, I, I dabble in a few different things and textiles is very much a, an autumn winter hobby for me. So I studied printed textiles many years ago when I moved to Shetland. My interest moved towards more sort of constructed textiles. I learned an ancient weaving technique called tablet weaving while working in archaeology, and that fascinated me. So I spent a bit of time understanding how the technique works, designing my own patterns, as well as replicating historical examples. And I also taught myself to crochet during one Shetland winter, and I've produced a few patterns on the back of that. But I've always worked in Shetland yarn because, well, when in Rome, um, Shetland wool is famous for... Lots of reasons, but first and foremost, it's an excellent product. It can withstand the wear and friction that is unavoidable with techniques such as tablet weaving. And it's great to know that you're working with a local product. So is there a way people can learn about that? Is there a website or any anything uh, to do with your clothing? Yeah, there are patterns on Ravelry that people can look at, um, which is certainly a popular site in the States. Oh, I don't, I don't know that. I, uh, uh, how do you spell that? R-A-V-E-L-R-Y. Ravelry. Okay. Ravelry.com. I probably should know about that, but, but I don't I have to, <laughs> to look on there. Interesting. So uh, I hope people might, might look you up on there. So uh, I have a final question for each of you. This is for bonus points. I'll ask Jane first. <laughs> okay. What have you enjoyed most about your work at Sumbra Head Lighthouse? I can honestly say that Summerhead is probably the place where I feel most content in the world. I don't know if this comes from the lighthouse and all the layers of history or the reassurance from watching the seabirds return every spring, but I often sit on the cliffs and struggle to think of anywhere else I'd rather be. And I do really enjoy meeting our visitors. It's amazing how many people we meet that are connected to the lighthouse in one way or another. And it's a real privilege to think that you're adding to someone's holiday. We get a lot of repeat visitors too, and so it's great to welcome people back. And over the years, many have become good friends. I always feel like there's a lot of goodwill towards Sumberhead and lighthouses in general, from visitors to the site and our online audience too. And I love the wildlife here. The way life changes on the cliffs throughout the summer, the moment the sea pinks come into bloom and carpet the cliffs in sugary pink, or the moment the young adult puffins return, and they're absolutely everywhere you look. One of the best things was discovering that the seabirds use the same nesting sites each year. I've spent enough time watching the cliffs to know where the different birds nest. So I know that if I'm watching a pair of adult kitty wakes rearing their chick, they're the same kitty wakes I was watching the previous year. There's definitely a rhythm to life at Sumberhead and all happening around the steadfast reliability of Sumberhead Lighthouse. I can certainly understand. It's no no problem at all understanding how you can become so attached to a spectacular place like that. So, mm -hmm. final question for you, Brian: What have you enjoyed most about your years as a 
lighthouse technician and a, a lighthouse keeper. Well, I suppose I've enjoyed most of everything. Uh, the Northern Lighthouse were the NLB, especially from a lightkeeper's point of view, was really like a great big family. Everybody sort of knew everybody else or knew of everybody else. And some of that exists in the service today, but it's not to the same extent as when, when keepers were on the go. A lot of people made very good friendships that lasted all their lives in the service. And it was very good just having these people as your friends. And as a technician, it could be a very interesting job. Sometimes you had to dream up a very innovative <laughs> methods of repairing things because when you bear in mind that the lightroom machinery, for example, was most of it was over 100 years or about 100 years old, and every spare or anything you needed had to be made specifically for it, made specifically and identically, there's absolutely nothing come out of the shelf. It would be a, a sense of a job well done and a good bit of job satisfaction when everything fitted perfectly and the machine then worked correctly. Another thing I suppose I should add is that the NLB were, were excellent employers and they really looked after the staff extremely well. And uh, in fact, they still do. It, I just enjoyed the, 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 I suppose, the freedom of the job in a way because when you were doing maintenance on a, on a remote lighthouse, you were basically, it was up to you to decide how to get it, everything to work perfectly and what was wrong and fix it. And so Jane and Brian, you summed things up uh, pretty well there. Thank you. Thank you for that. And uh, I want to thank you so much for spending this this time with me. I, I really do appreciate it. And I'm sure people are going to enjoy listening to this. And I hope I can see you uh, one of these years at Sumber Ahead. I can't, it's definitely near the top of my bucket list. I would love to get there. So thank, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, Nate. And hopefully things will open up again and we'll be able to, to meet you in, yeah. in person at Sumber. Yeah, if you're ever in Shetland, do look us up. If you give us advanced water, we might, <laughs> we, we might even put the coffee pot on. <laughs> you can learn more about Sumbera Head Lighthouse at sumberahead.com. That's S-U-M-B-U-R-G-H-H-E-A-D.com. There's also information about the guest accommodations at shetlandlighthouse.com. And you can read more about this and other Scotland lighthouses at the Northern Lighthouse Board's website at nlb.org.uk. That's nlb.org.uk. Thanks again to today's guests, Jane Outram and Brian Johnson. As we talked about in the interview, Brian restored the foghorn at Sumbra Head. You can see videos of the horn on YouTube, but I thought it might be a good idea to play it right now so our listeners can hear it. So here is the foghorn at Sumbra Head. So is that a great sound or what? You know, compare it to the uh, electronic foghorns we have today. That is a really great sound. I love love the sound of foghorns whether they be the electronic ones but i especially love you know these older ones that just sound amazing yeah just make you think of the ocean yes i always remember the uh the kid the son of a lighthouse keeper 
who uh, said when he was small and his, actually, I believe he was the grandson of a lighthouse keeper, when his grandfather would start up the engines and, and uh, blow the horn, the kid said he felt like he was going to sink into his shoes. Yeah. That's, that's how it makes you feel. The bass yep. is incredible. Thanks to everyone with the U.S. Lighthouse Society. You can learn more about the society at uslhs.org. All memberships and donations help support this podcast and the Society's other preservation and education activities. The South African theologian and human rights activist Desmond Tutu once said, quote, hope is being able to see that there is light despite all the darkness, unquote. As always, thanks for listening and keep a good light. I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine